Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Over a year ago, I fought with my aunt over 100 years of unresolved family issues. While I agreed with some of her concerns, I mostly felt she was wrong and she needed to learn how to bring up issues to me in a more productive way. Then Jesus found me as Fred Atkins and Heidi D'Alessandro coached me through the peacemaker conflict resolution process. He showed me that I needed to take the log out of my own eye before taking the speck out of my aunt's eye. He also showed me that I loved security more than him and did not fully trust him to provide for my family. So I wrote two letters, one to God and one to my aunt, where I confessed my idols and asked for forgiveness. It took my aunt and I nine months to reconcile. This year, I fought with my aunt again about the same problem. But I asked for forgiveness immediately, which opened her to my request that she provide more specific examples of what bothered her instead of attacking my character. This time around, we reconciled in 15 minutes. My name is Sandra Diaz, and I am loved by God and called to be a saint. This is a reading from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 and 18 through 20. No one is righteous. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sandra. Go Broncos. That's all I'm going to say. We're not going to talk about the Super Bowl. We are... We're in this series called All Roads Lead to Romans, where we are walking through the book of Romans and, and seeing how all of the issues of life really come back to this book. And to get us started this morning, I, I want to paint for you a hypothetical scenario. Many of you know that I am the son of a physician, an obstetrician to be exact. That's not hypothetical. That's true. And um, as some of you have, as I'm sure you've probably noticed, we have some pregnant women in our congregation um, walking around. Again, that's not hypothetical. That's true. So let's, let's say that for the sake of this illustration, I came up to Amanda Grundy for, 
for example, is Amanda, Amanda here? No, she's not here. Good, so I'll just use her. So, <laughs> so I walk up to Amanda and I say, hey, Amanda, let me, let me deliver your baby. What would her response to me be? Yeah, <laughs> that would be kind if she just left it there. She would say, are you nuts? Wait, what do you think? And I'd say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you make a decision, um, you need to know that my father was an obstetrician. And I could show her a picture of my dad, you know, with his, you know, doctor coat on and his stethoscope hanging around his neck, you know, and then his degrees behind him, you know, on, on the wall. I could say, look, my dad was an obstetrician. I've got delivering babies in my blood obstetrics is coursing through my veins. Let me deliver your, she would say, you're crazy. And I, but wait, before you make a decision, you may need to know that before I decided to go to seminary, I was pre-med in college. And, and I took a biology class and I read a couple of chapters on babies being delivered. And so I've read the book. Um, and beside that, when my daughter Hannah was born, I got to cut the umbrella cord. Um, so, you know, I got that going for me and she, you know, she would, you're not, there's no way I'm letting you deliver. Well, before you make your decision, I got one more thing and I'd roll up my, my, the sleeve of my shirt and show her my tattoo that I had that mortar and pestle thing with the snake curling around it, I'd tattooed right here. And I would say, you know, that's it. I got the pedigree, I got the book, and I've got the tattoo. Now let me deliver your baby. Now, she would think I was more crazy at the end of that conversation than she did at the beginning. Question, is that a far-fetched scenario? Would anyone ever do that? Well, truth is, all of us have essentially done that with God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to address in Romans 2, verses 17 through the middle of chapter 3. So if you want to turn to Romans, um, and I don't know what page it's on in your Bible, sorry, but... Um, what James did last week, and he did a great job of, of helping us see Paul's argument in the first 16 verses of chapter two, where, where Paul is, is basically saying that nobody's righteous. He's talking to the Jews and he's, he's, he's holding up their self-righteousness. And the fact that they, they're claiming to be righteous, but, but in fact, they're guilty of doing the very things that they are accusing the Gentiles of doing. And he, um, Paul in, in chapter two addresses all of the self-righteousness of the Jew. And this morning, he's going to talk about the three things that made Jews feel so self-righteous. First, their pedigree that they were a Jew. Um, second, their book, they had the Torah. And third, their tattoo, their, their physical marking, circumcision. 
Last week, Paul argued against self-righteousness and the bottom line being that none of us can measure up, none of us can achieve the righteousness of God. You see, we have to get to the place where we look at our lives and say, as James pointed out last week, I'm not okay and you're not okay. We have to get to that place where we recognize our fallenness. And so what, what Paul is going to continue to do in this chapter is he's going to dismantle the position of the, the person who believes that they are righteous and thus going to heaven because of their pedigree, their book, and their tattoo. First, Paul is going to talk about the privileges of being a Jew. Their pedigree, if you will. There are three of them. Here's the first one in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, that's the first thing. Being a Jew meant that you were a nation that belonged to God. You were a nation that, that was descended, or uh, you were a descendant of Abraham whom God called out of Ur the Chaldees. You were uh, a descendant of the nation that God rescued from Egyptian slavery under Moses. You were the only nation on the planet who was chosen by God. You belong to God. In fact, that's what your name meant. Did you know that the, the, the word Jew is a shortened um, form of Judah? And Judah literally means what? The praise of God. The praise of God. Their name meant the praise of God. Being a Jew meant you were the praise of God and no other nation on the planet could claim that. And that's why Paul says later in this passage that you can brag about your relationship with God. God has chosen us. God has created us. God loves us. God has given us his word. No other nation could say that. So that's number one, being a Jew. Number two, verse 17, they relied upon the law. The Greek word translated rely literally means to rest upon. You see, they had... They had the embodiment of truth and knowledge in the scriptures, and they could rest upon that. They, they knew where creation came from. They knew where sin came from. They knew where, how sin would be dealt with. They, so they could rest in that. They didn't have to question and go, go through life anxious, wondering what to do, how to please God. They knew what they needed to do. Verse 18 says that they could know his will because they were instructed by the law. They knew what pleased God. They, they knew about morality and sexuality and marriage and parenting and hygiene. You name it. They could know what was right and what was wrong, what was pleasing to God because they had the book. And thus they didn't have to go through life blindly or anxiously. They could rest upon the book. And that leads to number three, verse 19, that because they had the book, they could also be an instructor of others. You see, because the Jew, God had given his word to them. They could instruct others in who God was and what God was like and what God required of them. Jonah and Nahum could go to, go to the Ninevites. Obadiah could go to the, the Edomites. 
and, and teach them about who God is and, and what God needed from them. Or, or, or they could instruct, you know, Rahab from Jericho or, or Ruth, the Moabite. And they could tell them about God because they had the book. They had the revelation. That's a privilege. And so they've, they've got these three great privileges. And in the beginning of chapter 3, if, if you read it later, and we're not really going to look at it this morning, but you'll see that Paul goes back to that and he says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? There's much advantage in every way. And he reiterates these things. You've, you're the nation of God. You've got the, the revelation of God. No other nation in the history of the world had those privileges. The bottom line to those privileges was that they could share the good news of God with the rest of the world. They were to be instructors of all the earth. What a privilege. But there was a problem. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What was the problem? Well, as James talked about last week, Paul had already nailed them in verse 1 for doing the very things that they were accusing the pagans of doing. The things that should not be done. They had a wonderful guide in the scriptures, but the problem is they weren't following the guide. Now, most of us have had this experience. How many of you have ever seen somebody lost on the subway? Yeah, if you've been in New York for any length of time, you've, you've seen the tourists, you know, they're, they're looking at the subway map, you know, they're trying to figure out where they are. They've got their guidebook in their hand. And so you go up to try to help them. And what's the first thing they do? They grab their wallet because they're, you know, all New Yorkers rip people off, right? So anyway, you convince them that, that you're not going to mug them, but you really want to help. And, and you say, so where are you trying to go? Well, we're trying to go to this place and then, you know, and they name some place and you, and then you say, okay, well, here's your problem. You're, you're on the east side and that's on the west side and, and you got on, you've been on, you're on the F instead of the D and you missed your transfer at Rockefeller Center. And so you help explain to them how to, you know, now you got to go to Queens, but you can, you know, and you help them figure out how to get to where they want to go. That's what Paul's doing. Because while the Jews had this wonderful privilege in having the map, they missed the transfer. And they were lost. And they didn't even know it. So Paul takes the map and he shows them where they they went wrong. And he mentions three sins which were common to the Jew and they were all rebuked by Jesus. Paul said, you who say you shouldn't steal, do you steal? What did Jesus say? He, he said in Matthew, he said, Be, beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. And yet, they rob widows. 
such men will be punished most severely. See, Paul's talking about these teachers of the law that they love to put on the externals, but at the end of the day, they're fleecing widows out of their money. He goes on and he says, you say you shouldn't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? In the first, in the first century, wife swapping was very much in vogue. If, if you were a man and you got tired of your wife, you could write her a certificate of divorce in order to marry somebody else. And if that somebody else just happened to be the wife of another guy, that other guy could write her a certificate of divorce and, and then you could marry her and, and essentially they were just swapping wives. That's what prompted Jesus to say in Luke 16. He who divorces his wife so as to marry another, it is adultery. Whoever marries a woman who has been given a certificate of divorce, that too is adultery. Uh, Paul is saying, even though what you're doing may be legal, it's still sin. It's still adultery. Just like what you're accusing the pagans of. And in verse 22, Paul says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What did Jesus say? He said, you have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer. You have turned it into what, a den of robbers. Um, they were stealing from God in the name of God. It was idolatry. Adultery deals with morality in the family. Stealing deals with relationships with others. Um, idolatry deals with God. See, God, families, and others, you're guilty across all accounts. Commandments 1 through 4, idolatry, guilty. Commandments 5 through 10, um, broken relationships with, with family and others, guilty. You're guilty of them. You see what Paul has done? He said, having a pedigree and having the book are great privileges, but they don't make you righteous because you've got a problem. You can't follow the map. Paul wants these folks to realize, he wants us to realize that people can't be saved until they understand they are lost. That they miss the transfer. So Paul is slowly but surely disassembling the self-righteousness of this nation, showing them the map and telling them where they went wrong. And in verse 24, Paul quotes Isaiah, and what was true then, 5th century B.C., is true now. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, the Jew had the the responsibility and the great privilege of representing God to the rest of the world, of holding up the truth of who God is to the rest of the world. But what was happening is because of their lives, Gentiles were disregarding who their God is. They were, they were chosen. They were set apart to be a light to the rest of the world. And they, were, they weren't doing their job. And the rest of the world was 
disregarding their God. Is that true of us? We claim to be Christians. And yet I wonder how many people have turned away from the truth of the gospel because of the lives that we live. You remember what Peter said? Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's thought is your life may be the only Bible that somebody else reads. The Jews weren't living up to what God had called them to. They weren't living up to the privilege that God had allowed them to have. And I wonder if the same is true for us. So Paul has dealt with the pedigree, being a Jew, and the book, having the scriptures. And now he's going to take on the tattoo. Verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Paul is saying it's fine to have a tattoo if you've got a life that backs it up, but a tattoo in and of itself is worthless. Now, just so we're clear on on what circumcision is, circumcision had two purposes in Israel. Uh, or for the Jews. Um, Originally, circumcision was the covenant sign that God had given to to Abraham for for the nation so that they would, would remember that God was sending this seed of Abraham, this descendant of Abraham that would bless all the nations, specifically Jesus Christ. And so it was, it was the covenant sign of those who were looking to put their trust in, in, in Jesus. But it also implied that in order to put your trust in this, this coming descendant, the seed of Abraham, you had to, to cut the flesh off and it had to die. And you, you cut the flesh off and let it die so that you could experience the life that God wanted you to have in the one who would come. That's what the covenant sign of, of circumcision meant originally in the nation. But what happened was that um, because Israel turned their back on God and didn't trust God for his provision when, when they were going to the promised land, God then gave them the law. And in Leviticus, circumcision became part of the law. Okay, so you tracking with me? At first, it's a covenant sign. But then, it, yeah, it's still a covenant sign, but it becomes part of the law. All right? So it's those two things going on. So in the context of chapter 2... What Paul is saying is, if you want to be self-righteous, 
If you want to live this perfect life and stand before God on your own, if you want to be self-righteous, yeah, circumcision has value there because it's part of the law. And if you're trying to keep the whole law, then you got to keep that part of the law too. All right? But if you break any other part of the law, then circumcision loses its value because the law has already been broken. So what's the point of keeping this part if you can't keep the other part? See his point? He's saying, yeah, circumcision's fine as long as you keep everything else. But if you don't keep everything else, then what's the point of keeping this? He essentially says in verses 26 through 28, he says circumcision is worthless if you don't keep the law. Because God is blind to externals. He only sees your heart, which James talked about last week. That that it's a matter of the heart. It's not about the externals. God is not impressed with the tattoo. Are you going to heaven? Well, yes, I am. How do you know? Because I've been baptized. Well, being baptized is good as long as there's an internal conversion that's taken place. But if all you did was get baptized, then all you got in your baptism was wet. Um, Because baptism in and of itself has no value. It's just a tattoo. God is not impressed by external ceremony. Baptisms, confirmations, communion, church membership. Um, those are all externals. Those are all tattoos. And as James pointed out last week, God is not concerned with that stuff. He's concerned with the heart. He's concerned with what's going on in here. And so Paul says, you were circumcised, big deal. If there has not been a death to sin and a a devotion to God in your heart as you trust in him, then it's worthless ceremony. It's a tattoo. Verse 29. No, a person is a Jew if, if he or she is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Paul is referring back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, where he said, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Now, I want you to notice what Paul does here, because this is really important. In this last phrase in verse 29, where it says, Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Do you see how he connects it back to where he started this rebuke? Where he said, if you call yourself a Jew, what does Jew mean? Praise of God. He says, What he's been saying in this whole thing is the externals are all about the praise of men. But if you want to be what you call yourself to be, the praise of God, it's got to be internal. It can't be the externals. See, it's not about how 
how religious other people think you are. It's about how righteous God says you are. Now, if you skim over chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, um, and you can read it at home this afternoon, what you'll notice is that Paul is essentially restating and underscoring the the argument of chapter 2, that there's no such thing as self-righteousness, that there are no one righteous, Jew or Gentile, And he concludes by saying in verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, the law was never intended to be there so that someone could work their way to God because the law put this impossible standard. And what it was there to show us is that God's righteousness is so far above us, we can never attain it. And therefore, we need a Savior. Because we can't do it. If you came in this morning thinking that you're going to heaven because you, you're a good Catholic. Or you're a good Presbyterian. Or you're a good Baptist. You've got the pedigree. My dad was a Baptist. My, my granddad was a Baptist. My, I'm a, you know... I've got the pedigree. Hey, that's a great thing. To have that, you know, religious upbringing, that Christian up, that's a great thing. But it's not enough. If you came in here this morning thinking, well, I'm going to heaven because I've got a big old Bible on my coffee table. And I got decoupage scripture verses on my wall. You know, I got that piece of bark that's got it etched in there and all varnished over it. John 3.16 right there on my wall. You got the book. And that's a great thing. That's not enough. Or you've been baptized or you've joined the church. You, you've got the tattoo. It's a great thing, but it's not enough. You see, what we need to realize is that those things are as effective in making us righteous as they are in making me a doctor. And just as any woman would be crazy to put her life and the life of her baby in my hands, we are crazy to think that our, the works of our hands can make us righteous. As Paul says in 310, there is no one righteous, not even one. Welcome to Trinity Baptist Church. <laughs> That's the bad news. But I've got some good news. There is hope, and it is in a man who does not simply possess the externals, but he is the very righteousness of God incarnate. He is the focus of the Bible. 
It is the man who lived absolutely to the praise of God. The man who at his birth was called the Holy One of God. He came from heaven to earth incarnated as an eternal being in the womb of a virgin. He possessed divine holiness from the time he was born. At the age of three, Luke says he grew in wisdom. Can you imagine a godly toddler? At the age of 12, he was found in the temple seeking the glory and honor of God. He was a godly sixth grader. What greater defense do you need for the deity of Jesus? From 12 to 30, the Bible says that he grew in grace and wisdom and in favor with God and men. He was a godly teenager and a godly 20-something. Unbelievable. He was perfect. He is the one whom at his baptism a voice rang from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And, and this, God said the same thing of him when he was 33 on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's standing there with Moses and Elijah representing the, the law and the prophets. And God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Meaning the law and the prophets point to him, but now he's the final word. Pontius Pilate found him innocent. He said it six times. A demon said of him, I know you, who you are. You are the Holy One of God. See, even the demons know who he was. Pilate found no fault in him. No one could find any fault in this man, and yet they crucified him. And as he's dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then the man who's being crucified next to him looks at him and says, you must be the son of God. And then the centurion who watched him die said, surely this man is the son of God. You see, Jesus was declared by everybody. He got the praise of men, but he also got the praise of his Father in heaven. And it's not what the men said, but it's what his Father said. And it's what his Father did. You see, his Father said, this man is perfect, and he has died unto my wrath as a perfect sacrifice, and thus I will raise him from the dead. And Jesus came out of the tomb. This man... Jesus Christ is the Savior that we need. If you are here this morning as a self-righteous person, what you need to hear from the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 through the first half of chapter 3 is there is no such thing as self-righteousness. If you are here this morning trusting in your pedigree and in the book and your tattoo my prayer is that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning and you have recognized that you are someone who needs a savior my prayer is that you have recognized that that savior is Jesus friends that's what a Christian is a Christian is not somebody who's baptized or, or 
has a Bible on their table or is a member of a church. A Christian is one who has put his or her faith and has rested, not on the law, but on Christ's obedience to it. Have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time when you have turned away from yourself and you've turned to Jesus? Where you have recognized that you cannot live up to his perfect standard, but there is one who has, who has given his life for you. Where you cut off the flesh so that it can die and you allow the life of the spirit of God to take over in you. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, I'd like to give you the chance this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, for those of us who who have placed our faith in you at some point in our lives, I pray that Today, we would remind it of just how great your grace is. How, how great our sin is. And how at every point that we try to rely on ourselves, we come up short. I pray, Lord, that we would better appreciate this morning the, the gift of righteousness. And Lord, I, I pray for the person here today that, that has never turned to you. I pray that today, Lord, you would, you would do the work of circumcising their heart. That they would allow their self-righteousness to be cut off and die so that your spirit might live in them. If you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, I'm gonna gonna say a, a prayer. And there's nothing magic about these words. They just, they're just a, a reflection of your, of, of your heart. And so you can pray along with me in in the quiet of your heart or, or something like this. Just say, Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe with all my heart that you are the Savior I need. So today, Lord, I just, I give my life to you. And I want you to live your life through me. I say yes to you, Jesus. I say yes to you.